Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 61 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Uh, a busy day, Bobby, in national security law land. Well, a busy day at the Supreme Court, Steve. Busy What's day at the Supreme there? Court. What is, as we speak, it's it's 10 a.m. Central Time, right, on this gray, wet, ugly Tuesday. Steve, this is not the weather I ordered for Austin. I was going to say, I did not leave D.C. for this. <laughs> right. it, it is warmer, at least. Um, see, we're already diverging. Um, so the Supreme Court this morning, <laughs> as we speak, is hearing oral argument in United States versus Microsoft. Bobby, a pretty important case about cross-border data. Well, then we probably better say something about it in this episode, even though we don't actually know what's <laughs> happening in the argument right now. I can predict one thing. Justice Thomas did not ask a single question. <laughs> well, that's that's a safe prediction. We'll add, we'll definitely have something to say about Microsoft v. Ireland, and we'll keep one eye on Twitter as we're recording in case Orrin Kerr or somebody else comes rushing out of the court to tweet out some interesting tidbits about how the oral argument went. Yep, and then I think the, there's other SCOTUS news to cover. For example, yesterday the Supreme Court denied the petition for cert before judgment in the DACA case. We'll talk about what that means. Uh, two decisions of at least tangential interest, I think, to our field this morning, uh, the court ruled five to three in Jennings versus Rodriguez in favor of the government in an immigration detention case. Um, and sort of four to two to three in this interesting separation of powers case, Patrick, in which I'm involved, which we'll talk about. Um, then we're going to pivot to, uh, well, our favorite courts of the moment, the military commissions at Guantanamo. I got to say, when we started this, what, 61 weeks ago? Yeah. Good heavens. Um, More. I, I certainly didn't think we'd end up talking as much as we've had to about the military commissions, but it is it is really something. So the font continues, the cornucopia continues to yield fruit. <laughs> uh, and so we'll like, have several things to say about that. I think that. we have three, but but maybe we'll, maybe we'll now be the surprise. What are the three things what we're going to talk about? Um, from that, you know, uh, our discussion last week of the Supreme Court's decision in Rubin versus Islamic Republic of Iran um, prompted a couple of interesting uh, reader feedback notes about JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsored Terrorism Act. Also, there's a good new summary uh, up on Lawfare, I think yesterday, of a big JASTA-related um, Second Circuit decision, Bobby, from earlier this month in the case called Lindy versus Arab Bank. So these things all fit right together. All, and so we're going to talk a bit about the distinction between what we were talking about last week, which is suits against foreign sovereigns like Saudi Arabia or Iran, and actually the much more perhaps interesting side of JASTA, suits against private parties like banks. Yeah, it's where the money is. It is, literally. Um, from there, we would be remiss, even though I think we both don't want to, um, in not talking at least a little bit about the, the demo, the Democratic oh, memo. the demo. Is that, the, make, is that a thing or I, are we making I, that a I, thing? It, it, I saw someone make it right, a so thing. All right, so we get the memo, and now we have the demo. And then and then we have the McMemo, the response from McCarthy, yeah, uh, trying to... I don't know that I'd call it a response, but, you know, the, the, the column... Oh, I'd say it's a response. It's, it's sort uh, of a response. Well, so I, I agree. Like, I, let me just say... I don't want to continue to pay attention no. to this topic. So no. I, we're not going to we are not going to do some sort of line by line. They said this. They said that. Nope. But we'll, we'll say a few words about it and hopefully never talk about it again. Indeed. Um, and then we have a we have a, a rare government brief in the speaking of FISA in the FISA Court of Review. Perfect segue. Um, the the right, Fisker. The Fisker. And this is um, folks may remember we've talked a bit before about the ACLU's lawsuit in the FISA Court to try to gain public access to more. Uh, hitherto classified Fisk opinions. Um, the government has filed its opening brief in this important appeal in the Fisker. We're going to talk briefly about what that brief says and where things go from here. So brief account of the brief. A brief account of the brief. <laughs> and if you don't like that as, a, as brevity, how about a short review of some short letters mm. that uh, the Defense Department and the State Department sent to Senator Kane talking about legal foundations for uh, U.S. involvement in Iraq and Syria. And Steve, I would say that some of the some of the reaction to these letters, it, it felt to me a, a little unduly alarmed. Mm -hmm. We're going to go over what exactly is in these letters, what kind of claims are interesting. Uh, my take is that they pretty much restate the positions we already knew the government took. Um, but that said, they're pretty interesting, and it's good to refresh them since we're still there. I mean, I was going to say, I'll just I'll take the value of public discussion and public awareness of just how um, involved our military missions in Syria and Iraq continue to be. Yeah. All right. So, so, so that that sounds like a, a, a you know twenty minute episode twenty five. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure this will all be uh, just you know relax from your twenty minute workout if you're on the the, the treadmill. Or I build banks. Maybe a short short drive. Um, I'm sh you may have to go around the block a few times though. For yeah, as long as we usually do. Well, it depends on which block it is. It could take a while. This so let's start with the Supreme Court. Um, do you want to start with Microsoft and maybe sort of not so much the oral yeah. argument, but the Cloud Act and how that might bear on this whole dispute? 
Yeah, so the interesting, first of all, what is what is uh, the United States versus Microsoft case about? It is about the uh, territorial complexities that arise when data is uh, belongs to a company. It's in the in the hands of Microsoft, for example, a company that's in the United States, but the company is storing the data at a company-controlled server in another country. Um, in this case, the the data in question was in Ireland. And Microsoft's view when they were when they were hit with a request for production, I think it was a warrant in this case, um, they took the view that it's not in the United States. Therefore, a U.S. warrant doesn't run outside the United States to Ireland. And the government's obviously got the contrary view, and it's become quite a hot issue. Um, there's a there's a fabulous episode of First Mondays this week where they have it, it's actually it's really cool. First, they interview uh, our buddy Andrew Wood. Uh, Woods, who's uh, got a really thoughtful take on all these issues and has written a lot about it. And then they pivot over and they have Brad Smith from, <laughs> from, from Microsoft, like the head honcho of Microsoft, um, expressing his views. So, so, so are you saying he was a he was a more high-profile guest on First Mondays than I was? Uh, Andrew, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, good, good job, First Mondays, for bringing that out. And it's a long and deep-dive discussion, so I really enjoyed that format. Kudos to those guys for doing it. Um, we're not going to go over the merits here. What we want to do is point out something that is looming in the background, which is there's a legislative fix that's been introduced. And interestingly, it's it's got pretty strong endorsement from the administration. Rob Joyce, in particular, has, has been touting this. And I think that you have a kind of a rare moment, Steve, of good government uh, effort where Congress and the White House all seem to gradually be groping towards um, what looks like a, a pretty reasonable outcome that seems to have industry support, uh, a fair amount of support from others. Uh, I think it's quite possible that the end result here uh, will be some some kind of legislation. And, and of course, that puts an interesting uh, question of what sort of forcing function does the Supreme Court want to play here? Do they want uh, to let this case hang out undecided till the very end of June in hopes that Congress will moot it in the meantime? Uh, maybe. Will they, if they rule for the government, then the impetus to pass the legislation, I think, will be much less. Right. Which is, I mean, so I actually think part of why the Second Circuit ruled for Microsoft and reversed the district court was partly, I think, to push the, to push the legislative process. I mean, Judge Lynch, I think, all but says that in his concurrence in the Second Circuit. Um, there's a really good symposium on just security about the Cloud Act. Jen Daskal has a, a really good piece about why it's a pretty good compromise. Um, Sharon Bradford Franklin, formerly of the Privacy Civil Service Oversight Board, actually has a bit more of a critical view of the bill. But I think, I mean, it's a good example of of, of the sort of inner branch dynamic that, you know, in a perfect world, Bobby, yeah. is how most of these things <laughs> would, be great? would be resolved. Why can't, why can't detention and milcoms and other issues also and like peers And like core surveillance, right, as opposed right. to as opposed to cross-border data requests? Well, I don't know about core surveillance. I mean, I, I, we certainly just had a multi-year uh, struggle. It didn't turn out the way you wanted it, but yeah. uh, yeah. we certainly had some legislation there. Now, let me just describe what the Cloud Act is. What's so great about the Clarifying Lawful Overseas Use of Data <laughs> Act? I gotta say this this uh, tendency towards clever and actually I would say not so clever acronyms is really painful. But yep. Senate Bill twenty three eighty three uh, basically does two things. On one hand, it would amend the Stored Communications Act. It would add eighteen U.S. Code twenty seven thirteen, and that would provide that a provider has to comply with the obligations to produce you know contents of wire and electronic communications under the Act. Uh, when the information's in their possession, their custody, or control, quote, regardless of whether such communication record or other information is located within or outside of the United States. So hmm. it, at first blush, it looks like it just rules for the government on this. No, and, says, and, and, this and, is and indeed, I think if that's enacted before the Supreme Court decides the Microsoft case, it would moot the case. Absolutely. But you might be thinking like, oh, well, you know, so <laughs> this sounds like it's just a win for the government. Well, there's a, there's a catch or there's an on the other hand. And what <laughs> is that? It would also add a subsection H to 18 U.S. Code 2703. And what, what that would do is create a special motion to quash procedure that works like this. The provider, the provider can file a motion to modify or quash the request uh, where they, in the statute says, where they reasonably believe. That's not doing any work. So just when they want to assert, uh, A, that the customer or subscriber whose data is in question is not a United States person, does not reside in the U.S., so a little parallelism to 702 there. Right. Uh, and secondly, that the required disclosure would cr create a material risk 
that the provider would then be violating the laws of a qualifying foreign government. That's where the action is. So this is about a scenario where the provider can say, look, we think, we have reasonable belief to think that this data is about a non-U.S. person who's not in America. And if we comply with the obligation to produce, uh, we ourselves might be violating the laws of some other foreign nation. So this would probably be you know, like the UK or an, an EU nation, but maybe others um, that have in some sense sort of passed certain wickets. What are those wickets? Uh, first, there's got to be an executive agreement between the United States and that foreign government. And at bottom, that foreign government has to have a roughly analogous set mm -hmm. of rules and mm -hmm. procedures comparable to this framework. In, in that case, if you think that's the case, then the provider gets up to 14 days to move to quash. I think it's actually interesting that they get two full weeks to, to push this. But setting that aside, uh, once they make the motion, the court can grant relief if and only if it finds that, first, the required disclosure would in fact cause the provider to be in violation of the laws of a properly qualifying foreign government. So not China, for example, not Russia, but maybe the UK. Uh, secondly, um, that based on the totality of the circumstances, the interest of justice favor quashing or modifying the request. And then you're told in a separate part of the statute, this sort of laundry list of factors to consider. And it's all the stuff you'd expect about the importance of the investigation, the foreign government's interest, the U.S. government's interest, all the expected stuff. And then lastly, confirmation that indeed the subscriber or customer, it's not a U.S. person. They're not, in the, they're not residing in the United States. Um, so, so there are safety valves. Exactly. So it, it, what it boils down to, Steve, is saying, look, this does apply extraterritorially. If Microsoft or Google or other people decide that for the sake of their engineering and business interests that they should store data here, not there, look, that's not going to be enough automatically to exempt them from coverage under the statute. The, the writ should still run as long – it's it's rather like habeas, right? Like yeah. if, the, if the ultimate custodian is within the reach of the court, it doesn't matter where they've put the detainee. Although right? although I read I read what you just described as actually weaker than habeas, right? Because I don't mean right, – Because there's a carve-out. Because there's a carve-out for cases where, yes, the, the data possessor is here – but the person whose data we're talking about really is in all respects foreign. Right. And, and there's also, I think the real action here is this is only going to, there's only going to be a motion to quash successfully yeah. if and when the, uh, the foreign person whose data is in a foreign location, that location where the data is, implicates uh, the interest of a sovereign who's actually gone through the trouble of creating this reasonable right. set of protections right. that we would ourselves respect, that's not going to be a lot of countries. Listen, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that folks are going to have quibbles at the margins, as with all legislation like this. It, it's, it is, as you say, refreshing to see, right, uh, this kind of thoughtful back and forth, give a little, get a little type of, you know, multi-branch, interbranch compromise. Yeah. Good job, everybody. Good we, job. We give it the National Security Law Podcast, two thumbs up, seal of approval. Um, but that, that, of course, that means Congress won't pass it. <laughs> it could be. Well, but they might if, if the court comes down. Well, that's the thing. So, so it's interesting question now is, is the Cloud Act just sitting on a shelf in case the court, you know, comes out the from the Congress's perspective, you know, comes out right. against the government and Microsoft? Or, you know, if reports come out from the argument that it went badly for the government, does that impel Congress to action? Right. It's actually kind of interesting. There's, the, there's, a, there's an important impact on how this gets reported. Yep. If, if, the, if the Twitter sphere declares that uh, Microsoft is in great shape here and the government's in trouble, that will help create momentum for this. Indeed. If it comes out the other way, the other way. If you are on the court, would it be a legitimate consideration in your mind in actually interpreting the Stored Communications Act and figuring out how the warrant requirement should be interpreted here? Is it legitimate to... to let your answer and your outcome be colored by your desire to drive the legislative solution. Um, not as a first mover, right? So, so in other words, I don't think that like my approach to neutral tech should be dispositively resolved by the existence of ongoing legislative process, especially because I have no guarantee that that process is going to produce a specific result, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but I mean, if I am otherwise of the view that things like the presumption against extraterritoriality, which the court has been very aggressive in enforcing mm -hmm. in recent years, militates in favor of Microsoft here. I might, and I don't like that result. I might be heartened, right, by go. the by the very real prospect that a decision ruling for Microsoft, especially one where the court overtly, in the opinion, invites Congress to fix the problem, which I think would not be inappropriate at all. Mm -hmm. um, well, sure, they've they've done that many times. Right. So so no, I don't think if I'm justice typical, I don't think I say I should read the statute in order to force Congress to move. But if I do think that the statute 
sides with Microsoft. I think there's nothing wrong with saying in the opinion, of course, Congress can and should fix this footnote, see the Cloud Act. Interesting. All right, we'll see what happens. Yep. Uh, what else is going on in the Supreme Court? You know, it's been a busy couple of days. So yesterday, the Supreme Court, in its regular order list, denied as... Someone on this podcast predicted they might. Uh, yeah. The petition for certiorari before judgment in the DACA case. Um, and what that basically means is the court is not taking a position on the now three nationwide injunctions against the rescission of DACA. They're just telling the government that there was insufficient justification for the government to jump over the circuit courts. Since the bar for making that jump is so, so high, I, I feel we shouldn't read too much and do it on the merits. So I wouldn't read too much into it on the merits. I do think that the absence of any noted dissent is interesting, right? That, mm -hmm. that, that even the justices who I think would be most obviously sympathetic to the government on both the merits and the process didn't see fit to object to this posture. Um, now, of course, the question is what happens now? And, you know, there's also a way of looking at this that had the court granted cert, that would have put more pressure back on Congress, right? And that denying cert before judgment allows the sort of engine pushing Congress to, to action to actually sort of stall out maybe for a little bit. So we'll see. But at, at the very least, the challengers of the rescission of DACA, it wasn't bad news. Okay. Um, right. And then two decisions this morning that I think are going to get largely misunderstood. Um, well, one's going to get ignored and one's going to get misunderstood. Um, so this morning, the Supreme Court decided a case called Jennings versus Rodriguez that we have briefly talked about in the podcast before. Jennings is a case about immigration detention. Um, and the question is whether different classes of non-citizens with relatively fewer protections, right, folks who may have just been admitted or folks who have committed, been convicted of crimes, whether if they're in long-term detention pending their deportation, they have a right to bond hearings um, on a periodic basis where basically the government has to show to a neutral magistrate every so often that there's a continuing justification for keeping this person in detention pending their as-yet-unscheduled deportation. The Ninth Circuit way back in, I think, 2015, had said that the relevant provisions of federal immigration law required such hearings, required this process. Um, and the Supreme Court, at the Obama administration's request, took certiorari, heard argument in November 2016. I think it was quite clear from the oral argument that the court was, how shall I say, disinclined um, to agree with the Ninth Circuit's statutory analysis which was very heavily about avoiding the constitutional question. Bobby, shortly after the argument, the court ordered supplemental briefing um, on the constitutional question, right? That is, you know, assume we don't agree with the Ninth Circuit. Assume we don't think the statute requires these hearings. Does the due process clause require these hearings? And there was all the supplemental briefing. We were headed toward a decision, and then Justice Scalia died. Um, and so at the very end of the 2016 term, the court said it was divided 4-4, set the case for re-argument, uh, and it was re-argued with Justice Gorsuch, but after argument, re-argument, Justice Kagan recused. So we had a lot of moving pieces. Why didn't that happen before? I think she discovered belatedly um, <laughs> that she had been peripherally involved in maybe a decision at the appellate stage when she was the Solicitor General. So they added Gorsuch, but subtracted Kagan. So there was the prospect we'd be 4-4 again. Um, turns out, no. So the decision this morning <laughs> is, for the most part, 5-3. to three. Um, Justice Alito, writing for himself and basically the other conservative justices, joined by Justice Kennedy, um, went back to where we were all along, right, which is we don't think the Ninth Circuit correctly interpreted the statute. But what's most interesting, and I think this is where the headlines are going to get this wrong, is even though I think one could quibble with Justice Alito's analysis, I think the Breyer dissent does quibble with it, the majority didn't decide the constitutional question. Um, right? so so after all that? After all that, we're back where we were in November of 2016, which is the, 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 the majority kicked back to the Ninth Circuit. The constitutional question of whether, which was always the big question in this case, of whether the due process clause requires these hearings. Good heavens. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of discussion in the media today about how, oh, you know, Supreme Court rules against immigrants, right? Big victory for Trump. You know, it's a small victory for the government. This is not a Trump case. Right. Um, but the big question is still in the offing, right? The big question right. of whether the due process clause requires these hearings. So do you read between the lines there, since they took the briefing, it seemed like there was a close division. Now we get this 5-3 split. I guess all we can really say for sure is they're wary and conflicted on the due process issue, and they want to see more development before they have to talk about and, it. And, I mean, to be fair, Justice Alito also points to potential procedural obstacles, right? So he, he says the Ninth Circuit should also consider whether this is properly certified as a class action. 
Um, right. So maybe there are there are ways to avoid the yeah. constitutional question. Clearly through not in a rush to get to the constitutional question. And, and I have to suspect, Bobby, that that's mostly Justice Kennedy's doing. Uh-huh. Right. That that to get the necessary the fifth. fifth vote. That's what I was getting right at. to produce yeah. a majority. The court ducked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they could have gone four three, but well, no, because it would have been four four. Four four. Right. Yeah. And so well, if Kennedy had gone the other way. Right. 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 So so I think I, this right. to be this to be smacks of a you know sort of basic compromise. Yeah. yeah typical. Um, so that's that's Jennings. We'll see what happens on remand in the Ninth Circuit. One last quick thing. This is in the Fed Court's nerdistry realm. Buckle up, friends. Patrick versus Sinke, a case where I filed an amicus brief on behalf of the petitioner. This is about the um, the great old question of when and under what circumstances Congress can direct how the federal courts rule in pending cases. That that old chestnut. That Drink. old chestnut. Literally. I mean, that is literally the old chestnut. That, that is truly a... a <laughs> I mean, U.S. versus Clyde, 1872, that's an old chestnut. It is indeed. Roast it. And, and by the way, can I do a, a quick aside? Yes. Um, dear listeners, if you ever have to blue book Supreme Court decisions from before the 1880s, do not trust Lexis or Westlaw. True that. Right? The dates are often off by a year because they weren't keeping accurate dates in the reporters. There's a website that the Supreme Court maintains, a list with the dates of early Supreme Court decisions that is correct. The Blue Book even says you're supposed to use that list and not what Lexis or Westlaw or the reporter says. If the Blue Book says it. And client, well, I, I happen to know the person who inserted that rule into the Blue Book. Am I sitting with him right you might, now? You, you might be sitting with him right now. Um, and and the, the client is an example of this. Klein you is, said you were going to nerd out, but that is well, top shelf. Klein is actually decided in 1872. It's often reported as being decided in 1871. Okay. Anyway, so the question, nice. guys, to reduce, to, to get back to what really matters here, um, the question in a case like Patrick is, can Congress literally say in Chesney versus Vladik, federal court, <laughs> rule for Chesney? Yeah. Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, well, dang. so so that's the thing. <laughs> I, I, before today, I would have said no, right? Now I'm not so sure. All right. So what happened in Patrick? So in Patrick, you had a statute called the Gun Lake Act, which in addition to resolving a property dispute in favor of the Department of the Interior, also instructed the federal courts to dismiss pending lawsuits uh, challenging the the property issue, right? Raising the question of the property issue. Um, I, I argued in an amicus brief, I think the petitioner argued in their brief, that the second part of that, right, the mm-hmm. the, the action shall be dismissed, yeah, yeah. is a textbook violation of the client rule by telling the courts how to exercise judicial power. Um, the Supreme Court this morning fractured um, in saying that the answer is actually no. A four-justice plurality, um, in an opinion by Justice Thomas, said, no, because there was some merit stuff too, Congress can do this, right? Because Congress changed the relevant law, Congress can also tell the courts what to do. I think there are lots of problems with that. There's a so, narrow... Let me, let me see yeah. if I grasp that. So, yeah. like, the idea is there's a doctrinal exception to Klein for a situation in which it's not so much, or it's not just that the Congress is directing an outcome in a case, but they're actually changing the relevant law in the midst of doing so, and there's a su- sufficient nexus to the directive. In a man- and indeed, in a manner in which there's probably no reasonable objection to how the case ought to come out. Right, so, so in a way, it's in sort of look. It's efficient to go ahead and do this. Right, it's like a frivolous constitutional violation. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, that's basically. I mean, I'm putting okay. words into that's Justice not, that's Thomas's not crazy. mouth. Um, it's not crazy. It's also not not controlling. It's a four justice plurality. Um, <laughs> like not justice, crazy. Not controlling. Justice Ginsburg, writing for herself and Justice Sotomayor, wrote a concurrent opinion concurring in the judgment. So that sort of narrower the votes necessary mm-hmm. to the result. Um, arguing that this case was unique because what Congress was basically doing was restoring the federal government's sovereign immunity and that there are things Congress is allowed to do when it comes to taking away and restoring uh, the federal government's sovereign immunity that we wouldn't let them get away with otherwise. So a narrower doctrinal wrinkle decline. Right. And then there's a really, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm biased here, but there's a really good dissent by the chief. <laughs> that agrees um, with you. That agrees with me. Uh, joined you chief, by joined at the hip. Um, well, on this issue. Um, joined by Justices Kennedy and Gorsuch. Um, that basically says, you know, whatever else you think about Klein, this is literally what the problem was in Klein. And so, you know, I'm not really sure the sort of carve-outs, the plurality and the concurrence draw, how they're going to actually be operationable, operationalizable. So is, is that right forward. that both of the two possible, so the sovereign immunity yep. or the, hey, we're changing the merits rule anyways, those two doctrinal carve-outs to the larger rule are actually both descriptors of the fact pattern in Klein? 
Um, so there was no restoration of sovereign immunity in Klein. Klein was about the seizure of private property. Yeah, okay, so maybe you could so that so, so the, you could, the right. narrower ruling could right. withstand. I don't know. I mean, I you know the chief spent some time in his dissent suggesting that the plurality does not actually that the plurality's approach wouldn't actually distinguish Klein. Yeah. Um, and he talks a lot about ex parte McCardle. Oh, that sweet. old chestnut. Uh, I do love that one. Um, right, and how basically those cases to be understood properly. Right, in McCardle it was okay for Congress to take away jurisdiction in a pending case because it wasn't telling on the courts what to do, Just right? Taking the, Whereas in Klein, yeah. they took away jurisdiction and told the courts what to do. So I guess the, the, the bottom line here is this is not as major a ruling as Fed courts nerds were expecting in Patrick. Like, folks were expecting the court was either going to, like, reinforce Klein or give up on Klein. Right. Well, what it is is it's setting everyone up for a good exam question in Fed courts next year. Huh, or this semester. Or this – well, I don't want to give the game away too much. Yeah, whatever. If um, they, hey, if they're listening, they deserve the extra the extra. <laughs> Advantage. Oh, I, I think the associate dean of this law school might get mad at me for that. Yeah, he's the worst. Yeah. Um, anyway, so okay. so an interesting, an interesting sort of like Jennings, um, not as big a decision as could have happened on the same facts, right? Mm-hmm. That that Jennings and Patrick both right. are big decisions, but not nearly not as big nearly, as they could. Yeah, have they're been. not going to be they're not going to be fully excerpted in the casebook. Indeed, quite they're, quite right. They only, they only made it into the notes, as Bobby would say. Exactly so. Exactly so. Um, all right, I so I think that's enough. That's enough Supreme Court stuff. Should we should we turn to a, a court that has a harder time? Let's speaking, go south. Uh, let's go south. Go south in every single way that matters. Heading to Cuba, my friend. Oh, I meant south in the metaphorical sense, but yeah. Oh well, <laughs> that too. By the way, you, they they had a, apparently it was a wildfire. Was a wild, and, and it got to the minefield. Yes. Okay, this is crazy. So first of all, the idea of a wildfire going to a minefield is insane. And then apparently, like, uh, it like blew Cuba, up some of the mines. And Cuban helicopters like flew in with and got and got special permission yes. from the U.S. to to, da- to douse the minefield. I mean, that is really something. Well, you know, you know, you know, the minefield plays an important role at the end of Bad Boys too. I was not aware of when, that. When Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are desperately trying to get back to U.S. territory <laughs> after having blown up the the drug headquarters in in you know Cuba. I did not know. So they're trying to get into Guantanamo. They're trying to get into Guantanamo. Oh, that is awesome. But nice. but but I will say the the metaphor um, of oh wildfire of, hits of, the of, minefield. No no, I was going to say Guantanamo is literally on fire. It is on fire, and and there are mines going off. Right. So so as I tweeted, Ashley Feinberg tweeted something about it's kind of like a, it's sort of like a Sharknado. It's like this combination of two great forces. I, I suggested that the that the reality is catching up with the metaphor. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's start with Darby. So if, several weeks ago, we, we anticipated Darby Day, the day that uh, Darby's plea agreement required that he be transferred on to Saudi Arabia. Which was long last, as the which Saudis is, were willing to take him. A week ago today, February and, 20th. And it didn't happen. Nope. And uh, you know, not much update here because nope. nothing's happened. Nope. So um, do you have any further insights? You know, all I have to say is there are only two possibilities at this point, right? One of them is that the government is intentionally obstructing enforcement of the plea agreement, and the other is that they can't get their act together. I think this, the latter is much more likely at this current stage. Um, now, there, it is possible, a third possibility that we may not have talked about much last time, the, the plea agreement does make clear that the Saudis do have to decide they want the person. Everything DOD has said publicly suggests that's not the problem. The problem is DOD is not satisfied with the conditions the Saudis would apply. Uh, is it possible, Steve, that actually this is just more uh, sort of incompetence? They're not describing correctly or fully what's going on and that actually they don't yet have a clear agreement out of the Saudis or a clear request out of the Saudis. Maybe, but if that were so, I, I would think we'd be hearing that because you that would, think would be- by now. <laughs> because that would be a, a much clearer, I mean, even for those of us on the outside where all we're doing is parsing the plea agreement as we did on last week's episode, yep. you know, that would be a clear problem, right, with the terms of the plea agreement. Right. If that, that, that is to say, that that would be an understandable and correct. legitimate reason not to have done the transfer yet. Correct. Uh, it's in, in, almost inconceivable in, in other administrations, I might have said. Inconceivable. Inconceivable that, uh, that this is the situation because then all you have to do is come out and say so. Uh, maybe it's the case. Maybe they know that and yet they feel diplomatically constrained to come out and, and point the finger at the Saudis. That's possible. Indeed. It's the only good story. It's the only good story because the other stories are bad and yeah. are setting themselves up for a, a big slapdown in court. Speaking of which. Slapdowns in court. Okay. Uh, let's so, judge path. So so we, we I, I, was, I was perhaps too quick 
last week in assuming that abatement would not ever be possible. You talked me out of my own. My, I speculated that abatement might count as termination under the interlocutory appeal statute. So, so, so folks who don't necessarily have last week's episode memorized, right? The In the Al-Nashiri case, Judge Spath has temporarily abated the proceedings, and the government has filed notice of its intent to appeal, although not yet, I think, anything subsequent thereto. That's right. Um, and the question is, why would the Court of Military Commission Review have jurisdiction over an abatement order? Um, the relevant provision of the Military Commissions Act, 28 U.S.C. 950 D, I think it's sub A, um, mm-hmm. only authorizes appeals for uh, terminations of proceedings. Well, our, our devoted listeners, um, all, I think we're up to 19, um, several of them wrote back to say, um, actually, in the analogous but not entirely on all fours context of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, there is some case law in some of the courts of criminal appeals that abatement orders can be treated as termination for purposes of interlocutory appeals by the government. Makes sense. Constructive. Ter- at some point, it would have to become that way. I so. mean, you and I were never, I mean, this was always going to get to the CMCR somehow. It just changes the standard of review. There's still the question of what exactly the government's ground for appeal is. Right. So we had the, the sort of the seven layer dip of issues arising <laughs> out of that case. And uh, this, ta- pie. this takes off sort of the very top least significant layer. And yep. it makes it seem very likely that the CMCR really will. Um, well, they'll get to the other six layers. So get your nachos out. Uh, now, so Spath had made this huge scene saying, look, I'm so crazy frustrated. Drops the mic, says, we're out or I'm out. There seems to be some confusion about whether it was a we or, we or I. Either way, it sounds like it's just a dramatic scene. And so Nashiri and Judge Spath sort of looms really large. And uh, and we we were just the other day saying, you know, what, what about the 9-11 case? Yeah, what about that, Judge Pohl yeah. and the, oh, yeah. the KSM prosecution? Yeah. Where, you know, they're, they're not getting the love. So Judge Pohl says, <laughs> hold my beer. Hold my beer. And, and has uh, declared uh, that Secretary Mattis – is going to have to file a declaration stating his reasons for terminating Harvey Rishikoff, the convening authority, and Gary Brown, the legal advisor. So there's, I mean, there's a provocation for this, right? So the the lawyers for at least some of the 9-11 defendants um, filed a motion, or at least orally moved in court, I think on Monday, mm-hmm. um, for basically some kind of remedy for what they called unlawful command influence. Was, was it not a motion to dismiss the It might have been a motion to dismiss, although, yeah. I mean, let's be real. They're not going to get, the, the case is not going to be dismissed. Right. Um, um, but right, or some other kind of relief, because UCI can, you can. There are other ways of disciplining for UCI violations. So the the idea is that uh, look, this case was going fine, and then because the convening authority was taking this step or that step in relation to how this case was going to unfold, and then was fired. If the firing wasn't for the right set of reasons, that sounds like unlawful command influence. Well, it's even more direct than that. I mean, so the representation, as I understand it from Carol Rosenberg, is that the lawyers claim that they were involved in plea negotiations. Right. Um, and that those negotiations were terminated subsequent to Harvey's firing. So question, if that was if, – if Mattis submits a yeah. declaration saying – Harvey Rishkoff was negotiating a plea. This was not a plea I wanted him to negotiate. So I fired him and will replace him. Is that unlawful command yes. influence? Yes, that is absolutely. That is the Secretary of Defense exerting direct control over the substantive conduct of a pending military proceeding. That is textbook unlawful command influence. Interesting. And then the question is, what is the remedy? Now, I don't think dismissal of the entire case is really realistically right. the offing. Um, but, I mean, Judge Pohl, if he's sufficiently pissed could do lots of other things like, oh, I don't know, sever the death penalty. You know... Which, by the way, is what the plea deal was about, right? I mean, if the whole... I mean, it would actually be an elegant remedy if the unlawful command influence was to prevent the, co- the convening authority. Well, that would get... But that would give the defendants all the benefit of the plea and the government none of the benefits of the plea. Well, They'd still have to go to trial. I mean, the government's allowed to be punished for unlawful command influence. Yeah. So, so, I mean, a good yeah. example, just, just not outside the Guantanamo context. A yeah. um, couple of years ago, President Obama spoke a little bit out of school about sexual assault in the military yeah, yeah. and said he really thought that those who were convicted of sexual assault offenses should be subjected to stiffer sentences. And there's a military judge in Hawaii who, because of that statement, which was not about a specific pending case, held that there was unlawful command influence that required him to impose lighter sentences on two different officers. Well, that gets to the public's interest in this particular case, which is different in kind and magnitude from from run-of-the-mill cases, even really serious ones like sexual misconduct. Um, Should, you know, so in a way, Judge Pohl has the ability to perhaps put the final stake in the commissions by imposing some sort of sanction on the government in the 9-11 trials themselves that makes it even more comical than it already is. They were still trying to put that case 
through its paces in the military commission system. I would say at that point that the case for transferring that to the civilian criminal justice system and at last getting justice in the case, which is something, as you know, I've been harping on recently <laughs> on Lawfare, um, becomes... Good post becomes, yesterday. Oh, thank you very much. It becomes just almost overwhelming. Yeah, so I It's th- already pretty overwhelming, but it becomes truly overwhelming at that point. Now, listen, to be fair, we should allow another possibility, which is that... Well, there are two other possibilities. So possibility number one is Mattis complies and provides a completely different... Yeah, it like, didn't work well with others, et cetera, right. et cetera. I didn't like the guy. Or, or just, I have... I have my preference for a new person. Right. And so the government made a representation. Uh, Judge Pohl referred to a classified representation or a sealed representation. I can't remember the difference at Guantanamo um, that the government made that the reasons for the termination were, quote, innocuous, unquote. Yeah. Um, of course, that didn't seem to satisfy him, which is why he demanded right. writing from Secretary Mattis. Well, it's possible it's innocuous. All right. Um, other possibility is that Mattis refuses to comply. Mm-hmm. Right, that that reasons why he makes particular command privileged. decisions are yeah. privileged, whether as a matter of executive privilege or some kind of commander's privilege or state secrets. Right, I mean there are lots of different. One could imagine that if if you're really worried about what you're going to tell Judge Pohl, right, one could imagine different arguments trying to sort of prevent having to even disclose the reasons for the firing. So let's imagine. I love it. Let's imagine that's what happens. Then what, the question. Then, that's the next move. So poll. I mean, then then the ball that kicks the ball squarely now back to poll. Now poll is a lot like Spath's position, where you have this question of their own authority. Uh, is he going to give uh, Secretary Mattis the General Baker treatment? <laughs> is he going to order Mattis to find a quarters? Good luck with that. That would be awesome. Oh my um, god! Of course, imagine? Mattis is a civilian, right? So you know, we're back to the same problem. Oh my lord! So okay. all, all this is to say, you know, um, <laughs> good on Judge Spath. I mean, Spath. Good on Judge Poll. Right for taking advantage of his authority over this case to actually extract answers um, on a matter that I think we can all agree is of sufficiently pressing public concern. Spath and Pohl have uh, really difficult jobs. Yes, really difficult jobs. Yes, yes. Uh, Pohl especially because he is the head of the trial judiciary, and so he also gets the administrative Michigas. Good times. All right. Speaking of good times, should we talk about some uh, civil civil suits for terrorism? Yeah. So why don't it's hard to know how to approach this before we talk about the Lynn decision. Maybe let's reframe what Where we were, were saying about week. JASTA and, and then tie it into the Anti-Terrorism Act and the civil liability provisions. Sure. So one of the really interesting areas for contemporary counterterrorism law, it's a whole chapter of our casebook on counterterrorism law, um, is the proliferation of civil litigation um, as a means of a, obtaining compensation and, and recompense for acts of international terrorism, where separate from the question of prosecuting terrorists or, you know, using military force against them, there's the question of using civil litigation, not just to go after terrorists directly, that's usually not very fruitful, but to go after those who are involved directly and indirectly in supporting, financing, funding attacks of international terrorism. Make them pay. This is America, damn it. Let's sue. Um, That's a a key instrument of national power. So we talked talked last week about the foreign sovereign immunity piece of this in the context of Rubin versus Islamic Republic of Iran, Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court case from last week. Um, And we talked about how JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terror, Terrorism Act from 2016 um, was sort of this worst of both worlds thing where Congress looked like it was making it a lot easier for plaintiffs like the 9-11 victims and their families um, to sue a country like Saudi Arabia. But in fact, Congress was not allowing those to to, to, to actually pr- return a judgment. So right? you, could, you could sue them, you can get a judgment, but you can't attach the, the most likely sources of, of realizing right. on that judgment. Um, JASA, though, had another side to it. And this is the part that I think got a lot less attention um, Um, but is perhaps in the long term much more important, which is JASTA also amended the private um, civil liability statute, the Anti-Terrorism Act. 1994? I think it was 92. I think it was 92, and then it was amended amended a couple times, 94, 96, and then. um, And so we we haven't talked that much about the ATA before, um, but it's actually really interesting. It's codified at 18 U.S.C. 2333, and it basically creates a civil cause of action with I think is it treble damages? I mean it's it's quite it's quite an aggressive mm-hmm. um, action for acts of international terrorism. And the big question, Bobby, about the ATA has always been what theory of liabilities 
uh, what theories of liability does it encompass, right? Do you have, can you only sue for primary liability, the direct perpetrator of the act of international terrorism? Right. They tend to be a little judgment-proof. They tend, well, they tend to be judgment-proof in multiple respects. Yes, and should tend to be dead. Uh, dead and bro- and not very rich. And, yeah. Um, right, or can you also bring claims for what's called secondary liability, where you're holding um, banks and governments, I mean, that's foreign right. sovereign immunity, but banks and other, and other sort of, you know, stand-up institutions Right, and, and the bank Liable. cases have have generated this whole sort of genre of litigation. A lot of it involving banks that handle Hamas funds yep. or Hezbollah funds. So Hamas, and, Hamas and Hezbollah had yeah. been the big have been the big big sort of uh, focus of these cases. Um, of course, one can also imagine if there are Saudi, if there are private banks doing business yep. with Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, it's actually the Iran cases that have been the most litigation provoking because the banks part part of why that's true is because Iran, of course, is subject to all of these sanctions and blocking orders and freezing orders. So a bunch of these banks were already breaking federal law just insofar as they were doing business with Iran and with the U.S. interests at the same time. Um, so the plaintiffs, I think, have taken advantage of some of the settlements that these banks have reached with the U.S. government as sort of proof of what they were doing, right, as a way of jumping over the, you know, just how plausible is the claim that they were funding Iran, knowing that that money was going to Hezbollah in order to fund terrorist attacks. So JASTA comes along to what? To make it more clear than it was before that certain forms of secondary liability indeed are actionable in civil litigation. Exactly. So there had been not quite a circuit split, but at least some diversion between the um, complicated decision by the Seventh Circuit sitting on Bonk in a case called Boim Boim. 3, um, and a couple of different decisions by the Second Circuit, including most importantly a case called Rothstein, um, where basically the courts had not ruled out secondary liability, but they had created a, a hybrid species of second liability that was not pure, like anytime you aid and abet, anytime you conspire, you can be held liable. It was like half a step up, hmm. right? Um, it was like secondary liability plus. Okay. And here's where JASTA comes along. So JASTA, which again was enacted in September of 2016 over President Obama's veto, um, adds a new provision to the U.S. Code. Um, it's 18 U.S.C. 2333D, sub, uh, sub D. And it actually codifies, Bobby, a pretty open-ended theory of secondary liability. Here's what it says. Um, in an action under subsection A for an injury arising from an act of international terrorism, committed, planned, or authorized by a designated FTO, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay. so the FTO doesn't have to be the defendant, right? right. The question is whether no. the underlying act of terrorism was right, committed so, by an FTO. Right. So Hamas has blown somebody up. Right. Um, so in an act, uh, uh, da, 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 liability may be asserted as to any person, and person includes corporation, mm-hmm. right. but does not include foreign sovereign. Right. right? That's okay, the, so, right? so bank, insert bank, bank here. Right. Who aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with the person who committed such an act of international terrorism. So here's a question about both of those. What kind of mens rea are we really talking about? Do, the does question. the bank have to know that what it's doing, providing financial services, is in aid of, at the most extreme, the specific violent act that resulted in this plaintiff's harm or harm to their relative? Uh, is it enough to know that they are providing support in general, that is knowing that it'll be used for these sorts of harms? Or is it enough to know, a la 2339B, that they're just providing financial services to an FTO? Um, That's the question, right? That is the million-dollar question. Now, um, before JASTA, right, I think the general supposition was that it was closest to the first thing you suggested, that the bank had to know. Right. Clearly, in that case, there would be liability. The question is, what about beyond that? Right. Once you get beyond that, it begins to get pretty broad. And that's where, okay, so that's where Lindy versus Arab Bank comes in. So Lindy versus Arab Bank is the second circuit decision from February 9th. Um, and what, So the named plaintiffs in the case are victims or relatives of the victims of three Hamas-associated attacks in Israel between 2002-2003. Um, they sued Arab Bank, um, and basically their claim was um, that Arab Bank um, aided and abetted Hamas. That was dismissed. Then they argued that the provision of financial services to Hamas was itself an act of international terrorism. Because it's material support. Because it's material support, um, right? And they cited 2339B. And they actually obtained a jury verdict. Yeah. And a pretty sweet judgment, $100 million. $100 million. Um, The case was appealed to the Second Circuit, and in its decision on February 9th, the Second Circuit reversed. Um, and it reversed basically because it concluded that this was a bridge too far, um, right? That you could not really, that the jury instruction in its definition of international terrorism was too capacious. 
Mm. And didn't it didn't it put some weight on the the very fact that Josta has since come along to clarify well, thing. things? So, so and and they're kind of turning that into sword, saying like if that had to be clarified, then apparently the rule before was otherwise. So this is exactly right, right? So there was insufficient evidence as to causation, right? There was the right the 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 jury was not instructed on aiding and abetting. And so the Second Circuit said it could not conclude that secondary liability was proven as a matter of law. Um, but then it said, of course, JASTA has since been enacted. Right. So going forward, now what's interesting here is they, the, the plaintiffs in Arab Bank had a settlement agreement, the yep. details of which are not public, yep. that was conducted under the shadow of the uncertainty of this ruling. Oh, ruling. And it's really fascinating. It's clear that some kind of agreement was made such that no matter how the ruling turned out, they settled the case. And and why didn't that actually moot this case? So there's still right the the you can you can you can enter into a settlement right where a party reserves its right to appeal right and where the settlement is conditioned upon the the outcome of the appeal. I see. And so what we can assume is they certainly didn't settle for a hundred million. They yep. settled for well some, south of that. You know what dimes on the dollar or something like that. But what's but they right. and they're lucky they did. It was smart to do it because right. otherwise they'd take nothing. So what's interesting about all of this is that on the one hand right the second circuit has dealt a blow to pre-JASTA use of the ATA for capacious theories of secondary liability. On the other hand, there are now a bunch of pending cases um, specifically taking advantage of JASTA right. that are now going to cite to the Second Circuit and say, look, right. the Second Circuit has recognized just how far JASTA went to reduce our burden as plaintiffs in proving exactly so why the banks... more of this going forward. Well, so um, there's a, actually a major case pending in the Southern District of New York called O'Sullivan versus Deutsche Bank. Um, and I should disclose, I've done a little bit of consulting on the side to the plaintiffs in that case. Um, it's too bad. The real money is on the defense side. But, you know, <laughs> this goes to show I'm, I'm not making good life decisions. Um, and, and I think we're going to see um, JASTA bearing some substantial fruit, um, if not no Sullivan in cases like that, as long as there aren't other procedural obstacles to, 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 to obtaining relief. Wow. All right. Well, much to watch there. And, and if I can, just really quickly, I mean, that's that's sort of the descriptive summary. There's an interesting normative question that I'm, I'm not, um, that I haven't thought enough about to have a, a, a fixed conclusion on just how wise as a policy matter, right, this approach to liability is, right? I mean, that is to say, you know, I understand the instinct on Congress's part to punish, right, to hold. Sure. But, but, you know, secondary liability is a broad sword. Well, the question, I think, is how, how broadly are you willing to see this extended to other circumstances, including circumstances where someone comes after American institutions yep. for, for torts and, and, and so forth that are uh, prosecuted or sued for under other nations' laws, and then they come back and execute judgments at the uh, nine-figure level against American institutions. I mean, that's the question, right? Are we setting a bad precedent? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, as people smarter than I should be thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's worth thinking about. I don't have a strong opinion on that one yet. Um, speaking of people smarter than I, should we pivot to the demo? The demo and the McMemo. And um, the McMemo. What, okay, so what, if anything, is worth saying about the latest? <laughs> I think there's a top-level takeaway that it's already clear what you and I thought about this, which is that the Nunes memo, the original memo, the memo was was ex- extremely cherry picked in terms of selecting certain facts from the FISA application at issue, and making it seem as if that's all there was. The Schiff memo debunks this, I think, perfectly effectively and not surprisingly. Is there anything more to say? So I think that the Schiff memo, I think. Um, first of all, it does what I think we expected it would do, right? Which is to say, it actually has some pretty comp- uh, thorough references, right, to the additional details, to the additional materials that the government had in the FISA application. And indeed, I, mean, I think it's if if you look at the the Republican talking points, um, right? The so the majority circulated a response mm-hmm. to the Schiff memo, which, by the way, as mm-hmm. as as your friend of mine, Matt Tate, Pone, all the things has pointed out. Was probably a violation of the House rules to circulate. Right? No, they just they just burst that thing right out there. And it's like uh, there's how, a process how come that got to go out right away. Right. Um, so leaving that aside, what I found interesting was how the story changed from the memo, the Nunes memo, proves that this whole thing was a fraud. To well, the Schiff memo doesn't categorically repudiate the claim that at least part of the FISA application was predicated on the Steele dossier. Yeah, the whole thing just sort of spirals further and further into irrelevance, except it continues to have, have political well, impact. Well, but, but, but here's the thing, right, that, that we're moving the goalposts. 
And, you know, I we're never going to know, there's never going to be complete closure on this, probably ever. But even if we got the FISA application, right, until we got the FISA application, the point is, we're, no one is, we're not talking anymore about whether the FISA application was invalid, right? right. No one is out there saying, oh, Carter Page. Yeah, probable cause was not shown. Right. No one is, that, that's done. We're done. And so the question of whether one sliver of what we know is at least a 57-page FISA application um, included information that was bought and paid by a political committee. I mean, so, you know, I understand why we should talk about whether opposition research should ever be the basis for a FISA application. Yeah. It is now clear that even if it was part of the application, it was not the conclusive, yeah. right? So I just, this is all just... Um, now, Andy McCarthy, um, who, you know, has has gone through a bit of a, a evolution over the years, um, Andy's out there basically saying, guys, look, this is, you know, it's clear now, right, that there was abuse. It's clear that there was a problem. It's clear that this all should not have happened. And I just think he's, like, he's overstating it. So I, I haven't read carefully his National Review piece. I know that he's he's basically said, look, actually, this this proves the major concerns. Right. My impression is, and I don't want to go into too much detail not having read it carefully, but my impression is he's saying, look, there's this the shift memo itself shows you how important the Steele dossier was to the application, right. and that's political opposition research, and we need to be fundamentally alarmed about the use of oppo dirt paid for by a political opponent to then go into the FISA process. In the abstract, I, I think... Everyone should be concerned about yeah, that absolutely. possibility. That's fine. Um, and and I suspect that going forward, you know, it's rather like um, the unmasking in the context of presidential transitions, where ultimately what you did need to get out of this was some clearer rules of the road within the institution. We had that on the unmasking side with the DNI's regulations. We probably should have something going on within National Security Division in terms of whether and to what extent that. Uh, what material derived from opposition research that is known to the FBI to be that, how exactly the FISA court should be notified of the provenance of it, and indeed, whether it should be used at all. I think you have to be able to use it if it actually is otherwise valid information. Yeah, I agree. But you should probably have much more effort at disclosure than was, there was some disclosure here. No doubt it'd be better to have more disclosure. Well, so that's it. But I mean, that doesn't turn the whole thing into an actual political and, and uh, scandal. Uh, scandal. Well, well the it turns into a scandal, but, but it but, shouldn't. And the shift memo, actually, I think, insofar as it seems clear from the memo, makes clear there was more disclosure than the Nunes memo lets on. Oh, the, yeah, no question. The Nunes memo made it sound like there was no disclosure. I mean, so, so I think that I think right. the actual fact is that it was there was a footnote that clearly said this was acquired. It was paid for by a, a political action yep. committee or something yep. like that. Yep. Uh, there's the other listen, candidate. There's a lot of stuff out there that it's now just he said, he said. Right. And I just want to say that is not a fair way. That is not a neutrally objective way of looking at this. This is not a battle of two competing memos. Yeah, right. right. This is one memo that was clearly designed to vindicate an existing narrative and another memo that is trying to correct the record. Those are not the right. same well, thing. And there's an effort underway to try to portray the Schiff memo as with a moral equivalency in that exact respect, trying to say, oh, it's it's cherry picking, it's spinning, etc. cetera. Uh, I think it's best we all just move on. <laughs> well, I'm, we will move on. I am not sure that yeah. the people for whom the, the original memo was intended well, are going to move on. Well, remember a few weeks ago, not against my own interest, let's perpetuate this a bit more. <laughs> I was trying. Didn't Nunez's team suggest that he had not just one, two, or three, but four or five additional memos yes. he yep. was planning to yep. roll out? Including one about the State Department. Yeah, so, so maybe just, maybe after the news cycle gets bored, it'll because revive. I mean, meanwhile, the indictments keep rolling, right? And so, you know, for all this, like, it's a witch hunt. Well, it's a witch hunt that has now produced 19 indictments and five guilty pleas. Right, no, we had a, a whole right, uh, with the Gates, further The Gates maneuver since our last episode. Um, anybody new brought within the scope of the set of indictees? I, I think, no, you just had more charges, more charges leveled against, against Manafort. Against, yeah. And you had the Gates plea, which I think folks are reading as a sort of dramatic ratcheting up of the pressure, ratcheting up of the pressure on Manafort. Right. And, and so the million-dollar question, I suppose, is will Manafort plead and cooperate at some point? I think at that what is. Point, will, will I think that, that is now the, the lever. Yeah. Or, and, is he, or is he going to spend the rest of his life in federal prison? Right. Exactly. Now, one suspects it's eventually he will plead, but is there a pathway in which his cooperation actually brings new characters, more more high-profile characters, into the uh, reach of Pe the maybe, investigation? Maybe people who have been having trouble getting security clearances, People like perhaps? that. Uh, I, I, you know, but I think it's by no means guaranteed that'll happen. No, uh, no. I mean, and, and and then the question is going to be whether folks will still think that this was 
worth the candle. I mean, I think so because I think at the very least there is now compelling evidence of Russia's effort to interfere with the election wholly apart from the complicity and culpability of the Trump campaign. Well, and just this, this sort of seedy underside of yep. a certain slice of how, how government works where you've got people who are taking money in these ways, not disclosing it, and then getting involved yep. in policymaking and in campaigns. Yep. Hopefully this whole process has put a lot of pressure that on the margins, we'll never know the particular cases that don't then happen, but in the future, hopefully we'll see less of that. All right. Um, speaking of FISA, we actually have some nerdy FISA stuff to talk about briefly. Yes, the uh, the government's the government's brief on appeal in uh, what is the case called? Oh wait, it has a good it's, name. It's in Ray certification, certification of, of questions, questions of law, law to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. You know, I guess I hate all that stuff. Just let's just come up with a good name. Let's ACLU. Real. I mean, the ACLU is the nominal party let's here. Let's call it that. Or ACLU, right? ACLU and Mafia. ACLU and Mafia. Right. The the Mafia case. All right. Anyway, mafia, just for listeners who don't recall, that's the Media, media and Freedom free and Information Accessibility Clinic. It's a Yale clinic on free free access to information. Hey, so there's the, the Congress isn't the only people that can name stuff. Oh, all these acronyms. So, so Dar Williams has a great line in a song about how um, students against the treacherous use of fur, right? What kind of name is that? It doesn't even make a good acronym. <laughs> anyway, um, so the, the, the basic issue, as folks might recall, is this lawsuit by the ACLU in the FISA court seeking disclosure of additional opinions by the FISA court, um, and basically claiming that the that there is a First Amendment right of public access to judicial proceedings that warrants the disclosure of all opinions to the extent that the disclosure would not compromise national security. And the en banc FISA court, six to five, said, well, so so first, right, the original FISA judge ruled there was no standing. No right? standing. So the left hand to bring this claim, the en banc FISA court, six to five, disagreed and said that there was standing, right, even though they expressed significant skepticism about the merits right. of and, the and a key part of the claim. opinion was to say, look, e- even if there's no merit to the claim, but but if the judicial decision is causing injury, right. or it, it was kind of dancing with the idea that, look, maybe your case is worthless, but you still get standing. Well, so this is an old and, distinction in Fed courts, land, right? right? That, that there's a difference between frivolous and just meritless cases, right? That And that standing can be established even in meritless cases if, if you accept all of the allegations as true, and if you accept that the right claimed exists, there actually is an entitlement to relief. And this then leads to the certification of the question of law. To the Fisker, right? right which has only decided, I think, what, three big, three cases that the, we know of? That we know of. In its, in its history. And we know this will be the only one, the first one, at least, of uh, 2018, because it's styled as 18-01. It's styled as 18-01. Um, and also, this will be the first one under the certification provisions of the USA Freedom Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so the government's opening brief, not surprisingly, um, basically sides with Judge Collier's original decision in the Fisk below. Um, and devotes basically the first eh, half or so um, to the claim that the ACLU lacks standing. Now, interestingly, the claim is not that the ACLU lacks standing because there's no, you know, injury on their theory. The claim is that their their theory is it's so mer- yeah. mer- is so categorically meritless that it's frivolous. Right, right. There's this line about uh, a black cat in a in a, a dark basement or something, or a dark basement full of coal or some. Overwrought. There's, a, there's a metaphor. Wait, I want to get the metaphor because it's a good one. Well, they, um, they restate it then right. too as a feline in a room full of answers. So the en banc court said it's like distinguishing a black cat in a coal cellar. And then the next line, the brief says, parsing this question, the court below split six to five over whether it saw a feline among the anthracites. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> not, <laughs> Come not, on, people. Not loving that line. I am not loving that line either. All right, All right. so the, the point is... Hashtag Gorsuch style. Okay, so quite... Ouch. Um, the question is... <laughs> uh, people are being, are being too uh, catty about... Catty. Catty. Uh, oh, you. drink. Thank you. All right, so... First, is there a merit? Is there merit to this claim? So, so here's the thing. I, I think it's not frivolous, right? I think that um, we've talked briefly before about the theory of the First Amendment right of public access. It is not that well fleshed out in civil cases, right? But it is in criminal cases. Um, there's a line of Supreme Court cases, Richmond newspapers, Press Enterprise, where the court has said there's a pretty powerful presumption in favor of public access. Now, of course, the whole theory of FISA is that it's supposed to be behind closed doors, supposed to overcome that presumption. But isn't, isn't this all, wouldn't that equally be true for just ordinary uh, warrant applications? And and no one, I don't think, has ever succeeded in making a First Amendment right of public access to those ex parte But those are, those are sealed, not classified, right? And so I think the argument... Right, so it's even stronger here. Well, so I guess that's the question, right? The question is whether... Um, the, I mean, so let's be clear, right? What the, the, the ACLU's 
motion is not seeking the underlying application materials, right? The principal claim here is for the opinions, right? The decisions by the FISA court. I think those are different, right? Because those are judicial rulings that are creating, presumably, law that has an impact upon the government surveillance authorities. But isn't that true for warrant applications, ordinary warrant applications, too? Do, do warrant applications tend to produce decisions? I mean, like with like precedential, you know, analyses of the relevant legal? It has legal? to every now and then in the yeah. same way that the, it, it's totally analogous, I think, to the FISA yeah. court Title I order scenario yeah. where the typical run-of-the-mill case, there's no opinion. There's a, there's an analysis of the facts. No, in which case there's nothing to disclose. Right. My point but is, but once in a blue moon, you get a new technology, and that'll be exactly replicated. I think in almost every instance by the uh, yeah. by the. So listen, all I'm saying is that stuff. the answer. I'm, is the no, I understand stuff. right. The the answer may be no, but I don't think it's so self-evident as to be frivolous, right? And indeed, I think the the much wiser thing for the Fisker to do is to take the merits at least as right. seriously. Well, and as the government possible. actually invites them to say, hey, you know what? If you want, just resolve this on the right. merits. So it's inter- even though the, even though the FISA court didn't, right? right. So when they, they don't want to go back to the FISA court. Right. They so, want the Fisker to go ahead and just settle this issue now. So it's interesting. It is, it is the government's last argument in this brief, but I actually think it might be the best, right? Um, not Not like... I'm convinced, but it might be the right. best like sort of approach, yeah. um, which is to say, even if this court finds that the FISC had jurisdiction, this court should adjudicate the entire matter and hold that Movens claim lacks merit. Right. You know what? Fine, because then at least we will have resolution by the Fisker. Right. You won't have to have different. And this has been Fisker going on for years and years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm actually all for. Um, first of all, I think it's correct that ACLU has alleged enough to create standing. And second, I've, I too would like to see the First Amendment issue decided one way or the other right. so that you and I can sit down on this podcast and fight about, you know, who got it right. Well, and this is a lot like the Milcom's issue where it's perfectly obvious that however this comes out, you know, the Fisker's probably going to have this issue before it anyways. Has it now? Let's go ahead and resolve this. That's right. And I would just add, it's going to be very hard for whoever loses. Well, actually, that's not true. If the ACLU loses, it's going to be very hard for them to appeal that to the Supreme Court. Actually, pretty easy if the government loses. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, lightning round. Do you want to briefly do lightning round on Syria and Iraq? Yeah, let's just let's just take note of this. So um, a while back, Senator Kane had sent letters to the Defense Department and the State Department um, requesting clarification on the administration's claims of legal authority supporting the uh, deployment of U.S. combat forces in Syria and Iraq. Um, and in letters from uh, January 29th and February 12th, uh, these two pagers were sent back from from personnel at both departments. And they've gone public, and it precipitated a fair amount of public commentary, including some reports saying, "Like, good Lord Almighty, look at the uh, look at the claims the Trump administration is making under Article 2. So I thought it was worth just saying a few words about those letters. First, the DoD letter. Um, the interesting parts in the DoD letter are are as follows, and I think all of this was already sort of clearly the administration's position. Um, and indeed, it's not clear that this is that different from a. Uh, from Obama administration positions. Uh, first, there's a, there's a line that says, look, the Islamic State will be defeated when, quote, local security forces are capable of effectively responding to and containing the group, and when the Islamic State is unable to function as a global organization. I think that actually, especially that last part, the unable to function on a global basis anymore, actually nicely tracks and echoes Jay Johnson's yep. statements about when al-Qaeda could be deemed defeated. The Oxford Union speech? Yes, exactly what I was thinking of. Um, there's a separate line that talks about uh, the particular and limited instances where we've actually directly struck against Syrian or pro-Syrian forces. And in keeping with prior explanations of the legal foundations for this, the letter states that these were no more than necessary and proportional responses to address immediate threats to U.S. or partnered forces involved in the Islamic State fight. That is, it's just adjunct uh, unit defense, unit self-defense in the context where you're otherwise properly there to fight the Islamic State. There's a line that uh, says and clarifies something that I would thought didn't need clarification, but it's probably good to clarify it. No one is claiming that the government of Syria or the pro-Syrian forces count as associated forces under the AMF. So again, underscoring that the instances of uh, combat firepower being directed against the Syrians or their or their proxy forces, um, those are not claimed extensions of the AMF. Those are unit self-defense scenarios appended to the AMF theory that puts the troops there in the first place. Uh, there's a reference to the t- April 2017 strike on Syria's Sherat airfield, which, as you'll recall, was hmm. uh, about the, chem- the use of chemical weapons. It was a it was a strike against Syria expressly uh, defended and justified on grounds that it's not an AUMF 
uh, airstrike, and it's not unit self-defense, but rather something else, uh, in keeping with what had already been said about that, for better or worse, the claim was this was Article Two only. It was commander-in-chief and executive power based on, quote, defending important U.S. national interest. And, um, you know, that to that I say this is a, a cat that's been out of the bag for a while, for better or worse, and in part we saw it on huge display in Libya yep. uh, with the Obama administration. So, so I don't think it's fair to target the Trump administration and say, look at the crazy theory they've come up with. Um, it may or may not be a good theory, but it's not original to Trump. There's a separate letter from the State Department to Senator Kane uh, that's pretty similar, but it adds an international law section. So DOD did not include the section State Department does. Um, and none of this is surprising, in my opinion. It says, you know, what's the what's the UN Charter justification for being in Iraq using force? It has been and continues to be that Iraqi's, Iraq's government consents. Not controversial, I think. Uh, the interesting part is, has always been, what's the explanation for being in Syria, where uh, the Syrian government certainly has not consented? Uh, it has been and continues to be, and I think uh, correctly is, collective self-defense of Iraq. Uh, and then there's a reference to also of other unnamed, quote, other states, uh, as well as U.S. national self-defense. What they don't say, but which has to be added is, I mean, that explains why you're attacking the Islamic State's forces. But, but again, why are you doing it on Syrian territory? Right. You have to add in, though they didn't mention it here, the unable, unwilling type test that then functions as a waiver of, of Syria's objections. Obviously, the Syrian government is willing, but they haven't proven able on their own to uh, suppress the Islamic State threat. So it's got to be an unable claim. And I, I think that's the sum of it. I just don't see that much basis for people getting unusually alarmed in this instance. Not about the letters. But what about the sort of broader concern? That, I mean, right, there was this, what, there was this attack by what are what the media has reported are Russian mercenaries, but which I think some folks have actually suspected are actually Russian troops, right, against this U.S. base in Syria. So there's an incredible story. Yeah. Um, there were uh, there was Der a, Azor, I think, is the there was a known position uh, occupied by Syrian Democratic Forces. That is uh, our U.S. supported proxies, and we had combat ground advisors right there with them. Um, and over a period of a week, uh, a Syrian uh, proxy force was seen uh, massing in that area. This was a force that had Russian military advisors that were from the, the Wagner, this, this, this private military contractor in Russia called Wagner. Um, this group, as I understand it, is, is owned or at least is partially owned by no more, no less than the same dude known as Putin's chef who Mueller indicted the other day right. as the guy behind the Internet Research Agency. Right. Right. So on the heels of that, it appears, incredibly, it appears that um, that guy's, uh, I guess, mercenary yeah. forces yeah. embedded with Syrian pro-regime forces this attack. Uh, made an incredibly ill-advised move towards U.S.-supported forces where American personnel on the ground. Uh, the attack began in U.S. Uh, uh, air support just utterly decimated and uh, predictably and utterly decimated those forces. They say several hundred Russians may have died in this attack. Um, we haven't seen any public response. There's all sorts of speculation about what Matt, was Matt, this? Matt has said he was perplexed. It, it, the whole thing actually, it does it does seem like a colossal screw up on on the Russian sure, part. Sure, but but there's an interest. It's just further proof, right, that whatever the legal formalities and niceties, right, that there is there are these episodic moments in Syria where U.S. and Russian forces are actually basically on opposite ends of the barrel. Well, now it would be very scary and different if this was actually current uh, overt right. Russian. As opposed to sort of indirect if, and if, deniability. But if, if, and if, if these were actually not Russian private military contractors, but were actually just like you know, sub Rosa, you know, little green soldiers in the Russian gray zone way, nonetheless, that, that's on them because that's the price you pay. Um, the, the precise cost of acting and projecting force that way is you're just not able diplomatically to respond with the same indignation and, right. and complain about an attack on those forces, especially when those forces are attacking a known position the U.S. is going to defend. No question. My, my point is just that it, 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 it puts yet further light right, on the importance of having a broad-based understanding of exactly what authorities are behind our various different positions in Syria and Iraq. I, I think it's important to be clear about those authorities. I think that, to me, the takeaway is once you have forces properly yeah. in theater anywhere in a combat zone on, on any basis, or even in, the, in a non-combat situation, nonetheless, the prospect of unit self-defense or defend, extended unit self-defense of an allied unit, yeah, yeah. Um, that opens up the door to all sorts of uses of force 
quite apart from whatever the underlying justification No, I completely agree. I just, I just worry about sort of things getting out of hand. We should be worried. Yeah. Um, speaking, speaking of things of getting out of hand. <laughs> yeah. um, 20 this, minutes, not so much. Yeah, one hour and seven. So anyway, on that note, um, hopefully we won't have to talk to you again until episode 62 this time next week. So follow us on Twitter, Steve, at Steve underscore Vladek. At Bobby Chesney, no underscore, at NSL Podcast. And please spread the word to others. See if they might enjoy listening to uh, an hour or more of the latest national security and law news, plus a little bit of uh, pop culture and sports commentary along the way. And how you cite old Supreme Court opinions. Old chestnuts galore. All right. Stay safe out there. Adios.